Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Sabayomi Azizue, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Today is Saturday, uh, July 1st, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Later on in our program, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the continuing rebellion in France, uh, where police uh, shot dead a 17-year-old North African youth. In other news, the Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov has said his government is willing to assist in resolving the internal conflict in the Republic of Sudan. In Botswana, in southern Africa, uh, the country has recently signed a new agreement for the trade in diamonds with the De Beers Corporation. And activists in Uganda are taking legal action over the Total Energies pipeline deal. In the second hour, we look in detail at the situation in France, where over 1,300 people have been arrested in a nationwide rebellion. We will also look at the escalating tensions in Palestine, Finally, we reviewed two recent addresses by Barbados Prime Minister Mia Motley. These and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program, uh, so stay tuned. Uh, we'll take a musical interlude uh, with the orchestra Bella Bella. Let's listen in. <laughs>
Oh, she 
Welcome back, and uh, that was the sound of uh, the orchestra uh, Bella Bella uh, from uh, the Democratic Republic uh, of Congo, and you're listening uh, to uh, the Pan-African Journal, uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and uh, right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment of our program. And our lead story uh, deals, of course, uh, with the ongoing uh, rebellion uh, taking place uh, in uh, France uh, in the aftermath of the police shooting death of uh, 17-year-old Nahil M. Tens of thousands of police uh, were deployed in cities across France on Saturday 
uh, for a potential fifth night of rebellion after the funeral of a teenager of North African descent whose shooting by police sparked nationwide unrest. President Emmanuel Macron postponed the state visit to Germany uh, that was due to begin on tomorrow uh, to handle the worst crisis for his leadership since the Yellow Vest protests paralyzed much of France uh, during 2018. And of course, uh, the unions and students uh, that shut down the country between January and May, which also resulted uh, in a big struggle over uh, pension reforms uh, where pensions uh, objectively have been stolen uh, from the French working class and youth. Now, today, uh, some 45,000 police uh, would again be on the street uh, this evening. Interior Minister Gerard Damanin uh, said that with reinforcements going to Lyon and Marseille, uh, police deployed tear gas against youth in Marseille, uh, main high street around dusk uh, earlier this morning, according to a witness. In Paris, police cleared protesters from the Place de la Concorde and increased security at the city's landmark Chazilazet Avenue after a call on social media to gather there. TV images showed shop facades uh, covered with boards to prevent potential damage. The Interior Ministry said uh, 1,311 people had been arrested last night, compared with 875 the previous night although it described the violence as lower in intensity, and that's in quotes. Finance Minister Bruno Le Maire uh, said more than 700 shops, supermarkets, restaurants, and bank branches have been ransacked, looted, and sometimes even burned to the ground since Tuesday. Local authorities all over the country announced bans on demonstrations and ordered police transport to stop running in the evening. Nahil, a 17-year-old of Algerian and Moroccan parents, was shot by a police officer during a traffic stop on Tuesday in the Paris suburb of Nanterre. The funeral, uh, several hundred people lined up to enter Nanterre's Grand Mosque, which was guarded by volunteers in yellow vests, while a few dozen bystanders watched from across the street. Some of the mourners, their arms crossed, said, God is great in Arabic as they span the boulevard in prayer. Marie, who is 60 years old, she said she had lived in Nanterre for 50 years and there had always been problems with the police. This absolutely needs to stop. The government is completely disconnected from our reality, she said. The shooting of the teenager caught on video has reignited longstanding complaints by poor and racially mixed urban communities of police violence and racism. If you have the wrong skin color, the police are much more dangerous to you, said a young man who declined to be named, adding that he was a friend of Nahil's. Nahil was known to police for previously failing to comply with traffic stop orders and was illegally driving a rental car. An Ontario prosecutor made this allegation uh, just two days ago. Macron has denied there is a systematic problem with racism in French law enforcement agencies. Now, uh, the rebellion has resulted in uh, 2,000 vehicles being torched uh, since the start of the unrest. More than 200 police officers have been injured. Dominin said, adding that the average age of those arrested was 17. Justice Minister Eric dupont Moretta said 30% of detainees were under 18. In Marseille, 
uh, where 80 people have been arrested on Friday. Police said they had detained 14 more as they tried to disperse crowds. It's very scary. We can hear a helicopter uh, just not going out because it's very worrying, especially on the old port. That's according to Tatiana Corbellini, uh, who is 79 years old, a pensioner who lives in the city center. Mayor Benot Banyan uh, called on the government to send extra troops to tackle pillaging and violence in Marseille, where there are where three police officers were slightly wounded uh, earlier today. And you can read more on this story uh, by logging on to the Pan-African Newswire, and uh, we'll have more on the situation in France later on in the Pan-African Journal. In other news, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov expressed his concern over the situation in the Republic of Sudan and emphasized Russia's willingness to contribute to ending the ongoing conflict and stabilize the country. Lavrov made his comments uh, during a meeting with the visiting deputy head of the Sovereign Council, Malik Agar, uh, in Moscow just two days ago. Agar and Lavrov discussed ways to address the ongoing crisis in Sudan and explore potential solutions to alleviate the 10-week-long armed conflict between the Sudanese armed forces and the rapid support forces. In video footage taken during the meeting, the top Russian diplomat expressed his country's concern about the situation in Sudan and added that they are interested in helping to normalize the situation. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In the southern African state of Botswana, uh, and mine, the government, along with the De Beers Mining Company, have announced a new diamond sales deal. The new deal concluded yesterday. It gives uh, Botswana a bigger share of rough stones from their joint venture. Botswana, a joint venture between Anglo-American unit De Beers and the Botswana government, sells 75% of its output to De Beers, with the balance taken up by state-owned Okavango Diamonds Corp Company. The new agreement uh, covers a 10-year sales deal for Botswana, rough diamond production through 2033, and 25-year Botswana mining licenses. In the run-up to uh, the deal, which was signed yesterday, Botswana President Mkwese Masisi, uh, who is expected to seek re-election next year, had pushed the bills for a bigger share of Botswana's output. In March, Botswana announced it would take 24% stake in Belgian gem processing firm HB Antwerp in a move seen as designed to loosen De Beers' grip on the country's gems. Botswana supplies 70% of De Beers' rough diamonds. And finally, in the East African state of uh, Uganda, activists brought another legal case uh, just on Tuesday against French oil giant Total Energies, seeking damages over alleged food and land right violations in the company's East Africa operations. The civil suit filed in Paris comes four months after the collapse of a similar case brought by activists who wanted to stop the Total Energies pipeline project in Uganda and Tanzania, alleging environmental risk and an infringement of rights. Campaigners who oppose the project, uh, they insist, violates the Paris Climate Accord were disappointed when the case was dismissed on procedural grounds before going to trial. The new uh, litigation uh, cites Total Energies' alleged failure to comply with France's duty of vigilance, 
law and seeks compensation for the company's alleged violations of land and food rights over uh, six years. Total Energies has long denied uh, the allegations. And uh, with that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. And concluding this segment uh, of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussion on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire uh, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal worldwide radio broadcast for Saturday, July 1st, uh, 2023, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
voice of uh, Albert King uh, with the track entitled Born Under a Bad Sign. And uh, this is the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast. And as we were talking about earlier, during the Pan-African Newswire segment, uh, there's been uh, heated uh, confrontations uh, between police and the community in France uh, in response to the police killing of a 17-year-old youth of North African descent. Let's listen to an update on developments uh, in France. A fatal police shooting of a teenager has triggered widespread protests in France. And once again, the use of excessive force by police, especially in ethnically diverse areas, is under the spotlight. So how will the government address this issue? This is Inside Story. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Fully Batibo. A long simmering anger against police brutality in the suburbs of France has turned into a nationwide unrest. On Tuesday, 17-year-old Nael was shot and killed by an officer in Nanterre, a working-class town just outside Paris. White groups say the lethal encounter is just one of the many instances of systemic racism targeting poor and ethnically diverse communities. We have a lot to get to with our guests in just a moment, but first, this report from Laura Kahn. The Paris suburb of Nanterre lit up for another night. Anger turning to fire. The latest police killing of a teenager has brought into focus the uneasy relations between police and people from these working-class neighborhoods. During the day, tributes poured in for 17-year-old Niall. He was shot dead on this road on Tuesday. The police at the time claimed it was self-defense. A witness video seemed to contradict that statement now. The car was stopped. A police officer pointed a gun at the driver. Le parquet. The public prosecutor considers that the legal conditions for using the weapon have not been met. Clearly, the emotion that comes with the death of a young man calls for contemplation and calm, and it's what the government has constantly called for. This is the third fatal police shooting at a traffic stop in France this year. There were a record 13 the year before. In May, the United Nations Human Rights Council accused France of increased police violence during pension reform protests. And several countries criticized the nation at the UN Council for religious intolerance, citing attacks against migrants and racial profiling. But inside the Paris suburbs, there's a long and troubled history with police incidents often triggering a violent reaction. In February 2017, a young black man called Theo Lahaka was left permanently disabled after a violent police arrest. In July 2016, Adama Traore died in police custody after he resisted an ID check. And in 2005, two teenagers from a high-rise estate were electrocuted when they hid from police, leading to protests that went on for three weeks. And now, that anger and demand for justice has returned to the streets of France. Laura Hahn for Inside Story, Al Jazeera.
Well, let's bring in our guests for today's inside story. In Paris, Yasser Louati, head of the Committee for Justice and Liberties, a transnational human rights organization. In London, Rainbow Murray, professor of politics at Queen Mary University of London. And also in Paris, Jacques de Maillard, director of the Center for Sociological Research on Law and Penal Institutions. A warm welcome to you all. Thank you so much for joining us on Inside Story. Yasser Louati, let me start with you in Paris. We're seeing the protests over the killing of Nael spread beyond the suburb of Nanterre. Why is there so much anger in France today? Well, I think the question is, the, the answer is already in the question, how is it that an event in Paris has sparked an outburst of anger and rage throughout France? We have to, to, to put that in perspective and look at the past 20 years since the 2005 uh, uprising that took place after the death of Ziad and Buna in the northern suburbs of Paris. Now, we have to ask ourselves, why are these people expressing themselves in such a manner? Well, the answer is also the fact that all other ways of expressing yourself when you are black, Arab, and from the banlieue, have all been shut down. And what was even more sparked uh, outrage is the video that we have all seen where the police officer is pointing his, his gun at this driver and shooting him point blank in the heart. Now, the, the, the video is so horrendous that even the minister of interior condemned, you know, he criticized the use of, uh, of you know, um, the use of, of a lethal weapon mm. by the policeman, but also Emmanuel Macron. But this cannot be separated, uh, the, 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 the anger we see right now cannot be separated from the general anger for, about the situation for these people in the banlieue, the lack okay. of opportunities, the access yeah. to education, work, etc. Okay, we'll get into the, the issues uh, a bit more deeper in just a minute. Yasser, I wanted to ask you, you talked about the video, and what's more startling in this incident is that the police appear to have lied about the circumstances of the killing. And last year, we know that about 13 people were reportedly killed by officers under similar circumstances. But unlike in this situation, in most of the cases, there was no video. So is excessive use by police worse than what we actually know? Definitely, uh, if we are to quote uh, Sébastien Rocher from the National, Re uh, Scientific, uh, uh, National Center for Scientific Research in France, the French uh, police is the deadliest police on continental Europe. Uh, you add to it that uh, aside from Nahel, who was killed a couple of days ago in Nanterre, as we saw it in the video, Another black man was killed. He was 19 years old driving his car, going to work, and he was shot down by the police. But unfortunately, there was no video. Mm. And what this, what this video also highlights, the fact that before it was happening, the government was quick to react to first defend the policemen, and the media were already spreading the talking points of the police. So this is why, again, we cannot trust the official versions when they first come from the government. Okay, Jacques de Maillard, let me bring you into the conversation. You've researched police issues in France extensively. Just looking at the specific incident first, the police officer responsible for the shooting has been charged with um, voluntary manslaughter. What do you think will happen to him based on past experiences? Is he likely to be convicted? Well, it's very difficult to say. Uh, but the, the rapidity of the reaction of the prosecutor and of the Police actors is unusual. It was mentioned by the, the earlier uh, speaker in that uh, we feel that 
uh, there is a kind of immediate reaction by uh, judicial actors on the one hand and political actors uh, on the other, because they they fear a reproduction of the riots of 2005. Mm -hmm. So the, the level of uh, reaction was quite high at, at this level. But I would add that, as it was said, uh, it is based on the one hand of very deteriorated uh, relation between the youth uh, from uh, ethnic minorities in poor neighborhoods and the police on the one hand. And second question is the use of deadly force in uh, traffic stops uh, right. on the other hand, which is a kind of enduring question in France. Right. You talk about deteriorating relations between the youth in these disaffected communities and the police. Just looking at the way the situation is evolving in the last few days in France, do you think, uh, Jacques, we're looking at a repeat of 2005 and the incidents of Clichy-sous-Bois then? Well, I'm going to disappoint you because I'm not able to answer this question, this particular question. But uh, most um, observers were surprised by the importance, uh, the intensity, uh, and the fact that even in Clermont-Ferrand, the center of France, you, you may have had some neighborhoods uh, who did protest, uh, some young people uh, who did protest, uh, so uh, kind of uh, solidarity. So there was mm -hmm. a kind of reservoir of anger. Mm -hmm. among these young people, uh, that the handling of the situation is different from the police on the one hand and from police, political actors on the other hand. So, okay. you know, you, you never know if history is going to repeat itself. Okay, I'll ask Yasser the same question in a bit, Yasser, but I want to bring in uh, Rainbow Murray uh, to the conversation first. Rainbow, a difficult situation for the French government and French President Emmanuel Macron to handle, no, no doubt. He was quick to react. Can the government contain this crisis, you think? They're going to have to find a way to do it. It is very difficult. And one of the reasons why it's so difficult is because the response of other political parties on whom Macron is depending for alliance in his parliament is so completely opposed. One crucial thing to remember is that Macron does not have a parliamentary majority, so he needs to work with other parties. But the parties of the left have sided unequivocally with uh, the teenager who was shot. Mm -hmm. The parties of the right have sided unequivocally with the police. So that leaves Macron caught between a rock and a hard place. And at the same time, he needs to find a way to dispel this um, unhappiness, to help the people who feel aggrieved by this shooting to find resolution without resorting to street protests, not least because those street protests need to be contained by the same police that people are protesting against. And so he can't afford to alienate the police if he's also asking them to try and stay on top of any writing situations. Okay. We're going to talk about some of the laws that govern the police in just a moment. But Yasser, I wanted to ask you about the current situation and the same question that I put to Jacques. Are we looking, in your view, at a similar a repeat of history and, and the events of 2005 in Clichy-Soubois? Well, we cannot, you know, if I could predict the, predict the future, would be in a far better place, a more comfortable mm. one. But the uh, situation right now is very similar. The only issue, the only difference being that we already have the precedent of 2005, and the people who took place in the 2005 uprisings are still in the place today. So we have to really watch the events with a bit of caution, even though, to be honest, um, the, the uh, 
it was so quick to spread throughout the national territory. I didn't expect that. I think it would be, you know, for, you know, Paris and, and, and the surrounding suburbs, but not to go uh, all the way to uh, the north to Lille, uh, Clermont-Ferrand, as mentioned yeah. earlier, and even Toulouse. Exactly. Uh, now, as it was said earlier, uh, the response from Emmanuel Macron will be dictated by the, the hard right and the far right. And in, in, we already saw Emmanuel Macron uh, saying any attack against the police is an attack against the republic, just to make it uh, simple. He did not say any attack against civilians or uh, citizens is an attack against the republic. And this, again, shows that after his initial reaction of condemning or criticizing the uh, use of deadly force, he's already veering towards killing the police. The, the police. But one, one piece of information that is quite important in the case of Emmanuel Macron, we have to remember in 2020, his own Minister of Interior had to be sacked under pressure, mm-hmm. uh, after pressure coming from the majority unions who are close to the far right, Alliance Police, for example. And Christophe Castaner, who had protected the police while they were breaking the skulls and backs of the Yellow Vest movement, only said there could potentially be an issue of racism within the police. And mm. that sealed his fate to show okay. you how powerful these unions are. So we have to see how Macron reacts on the one hand to keep his, uh, uh, his authority, because, again, he doesn't have a majority in parliament, right. but also how much repression will be applied, which will further you know, push the situation towards more violence. For our international audience, Yasser and the others, let's take a closer look at the French laws that some rights groups have criticized for giving police more powers to use excessive force. A 2017 measure allowed for police to use their firearms in five scenarios. This includes against drivers who ignore an order to stop and if they pose a risk to life or safety. In 2020, the government dropped a security bill that would have prevented people from filming the police. The draft bill had prompted protests across the country. In 2021, the French parliament passed a security bill that would extend police powers. This includes using drones to monitor citizens and tougher sentences for assaulting officers. Rainbow in London, critics have said the practices and attitudes of the French police is encouraged from the top. Is that the case? What is the message from the top? Not just under Emmanuel Macron, but under previous governments. The message on the top has generally been one to support the police and to reinforce their powers. And it had to be borne in mind that the police have faced some significant challenges, especially in the previous decade where France was subjected to a series of terrorist attacks. And there was a fear that the police didn't have strong enough powers to contain that. And so some of those powers were reinforced. And the police also felt vulnerable. And then they've been asked to deal with some quite difficult situations over the past few years, including the Yellow Vest protests, including um, policing the um, COVID pandemic and the the lockdowns that came with that. And so the police are continuously calling for protection. Their unions want um, the government to stand by them. But at the same time, there's a growing sense that the police um, have problems with racism, with Mm -hmm. uh, excessive police force and brutality, which has caused a significant backlash against the police. And so the police are also looking to the government to stand by them against that backlash, but that's becoming increasingly politically sensitive. Okay. Jacques, police unions have said that such incidents, like the one we've seen in Nanterre, are one-offs, isolated incidents. Is the case of this police officer just one bad apple or is there a real problem of impunity within France's police force? 
it's always a very delicate question because uh, we need to be nuanced. That you cannot say that what happened uh, uh, day before is something uh, systemic or structural within the French police. On, on the other hand, you, you couldn't say that it's a kind of isolated incident. Uh, it is part of a much more uh, general ethos uh, within the mm. French police. Uh, in, what is it? Is it a lack of training? It, it, it has to do with the lack of uh, vocational training and initial training. It has to do with the professional culture of the police, which is mainly based on the use of force. I, I don't say that the use of force and violence is uh, commonplace in the French police, but the reflexivity of the French police officers, uh, the kind of policies in terms of training, in terms of management, do not take enough into account the, uh, the, the relational dimension, uh, mm. daily work of police officers interacting with the public, being able to de-escalate, being able to um, uh, talk with the people in a peaceful manner. So this is the first point. Second one has to do with the control of police officers. The French police officers, they say they are the, the, the most controlled uh, public servants in the French administration. But, uh, and to some extent, this is true. But on the other hand, when you are a police officer, you have a lot of autonomy uh, when accomplishing your daily tasks. And this autonomy does require some control. Mm -hmm. And in France, I would say that there is a kind of internal control by the National Inspectorate of the Gendarmerie and of the National Police that there was a lack of external control by uh, such agencies as the, the right defender, 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 defender des droits, pardon, mm -hmm. uh, in French, uh, that should play a stronger role in the way, in the way their daily behaviors are controlled by uh, okay. external independent agencies. Okay, Yasser, your thoughts to what uh, Jacques just said. He said this is not necessarily systemic. Do you agree with that? Uh, well, if you, were, if you were to quote uh, some uh, figures, we have to remember that in, uh, uh, since 2020, the uh, uh, number of people killed by the police has uh, more than uh, doubled. Yes, the police is also, you know, supervised, but supervised by former police officers. The IGPN is composed mostly of former cops now supervising uh, cops right now in operation, but I'm going to quote uh, the Senate back in 2014, a woman called Catherine Dumas raised a question to the Minister of Interior about the mental and physical fitness of the police in 2020. We went from recruiting one out of 50 candidates Mm -hmm. 2012. In 2020, it became one out of five. The score to be accepted... So it's a problem of recruitment uh, also, you say? Yes, the, prob the, the problem comes with, lies with recruitment. There is no, not enough, you know, how can I say, um, uh, uh, can I, disqualification of unfit individuals. We went from taking one out of 50 to one out of five. Mm -hmm. So, and on top of it, the score was lowered. Eight out of 20 is good enough to be accepted. And to make things even worse, the training has been reduced. It went from 12 months to eight months. To quote another police instructor, he himself complained about individuals who are 
intellectually, quote unquote, and physically unfit to join the police. But once they pass the, the admission exam, we cannot get rid of them. You mm. add to it the layer of lack of accountability and the permeating racism of the police. A study came about a few years ago showed that 52% of the law enforcement body voted in favor of Emmanuel Macron. And I'm going to be even more provocative. The national police, as we know it today, the centralized police, was born in 1941 under the Vichy regime. And we shouldn't forget the, right. the, the, the racist history of the police with the Jews and the Arabs. So it's not about uh, random events repeating themselves. Mm. It's, about, it's not even about rotten apples. It's about a rotten tree that needs to be reformed. Okay. Rainbow, your thoughts about this? These unjustified shootings in France uh, in the banlieues, these working-class neighborhoods certainly um, are a symptom, as Yasser has said, and you've alluded to yourself, of a deeper uh, and, and wider problems in France of discrimination, racism as well. What's happened to the idea of liberté, égalité, fraternité? Has it failed? It's always been a bit of a mess. Um, the, uh, I think uh, that liberté, égalité, fraternité, um, it, it, it's kind of Orwellian. Um, that, you know, all, all French people are equal, but, but some are more equal than others. Um, and so France has a long history of racial discrimination and disadvantage, um, some of which it's tried to sweep under the carpet by not measuring it. So it doesn't collect official data on race, for example. But it's a well-known fact that people from ethnic minority backgrounds find it harder to find employment, that they uh, there is occupational segregation, that they are much greater victims of um, the police, that they are often sort of relegated to certain neighbourhoods. And so whilst France struggles to acknowledge its difficulties with race. They are very present. Um, and to refer to what our previous speakers were saying, I mean, this isn't a one-off incident. Um, I, I could reel off a, a series of, of names of people who have been killed at, during um, uh, police custody or uh, whilst being arrested by the police. Um, to give just one example, which was very high profile in 2016, um, Adama Traoré, um, who died whilst in police custody, a young black mm -hmm. man. Yeah. Um, that also caused widespread protests around the country, mm. not just in the neighbourhood where it happened, but again, we saw protests in Paris, we saw protests in Toulouse. Okay. Um, and it just feels like history repeating itself. Um, okay. so, and so, God, sorry to interrupt you. I just wanted, because we have uh, uh, just a few minutes left on the show, I just want to talk about now the solutions. What can be done to address all these issues we've raised in the conversation? Jacques, uh, let me come to you first. When it comes to police brutality, how does the government deal with it? Because the UN Human Rights Council has criticized France for increased police violence. Uh, the European Court of Human Rights has also condemned France on five separate occasions for alleged abuses committed by the police. What needs to be done, in your view, to address this issue? What needs to change? Well, it's a difficult question because you have different levels, levels uh, that you should use uh, simultaneously. In that mm -hmm. There is an issue of control external control, uh, as it was said earlier. It should be reinforced. But you cannot reform the police against police officers. And this is a strong issue. You have to win the spirits and the, the hearts of police officers. So you have to train police officers um, uh, in initial training and uh, vocational training 
to de-escalate, uh, which is uh, the use of deadly force, is something technical, but it's also something relational, is that how you use your gun, in which situations. And uh, this question is a question of uh, how you are help, help assisted, uh, trained uh, as a police officer. An issue of recruitment, too. How you choose the good elements, how the, the, the relational competence, skill, um, valued within the French police institution. There was also a question, and I think it's crucial, the question of uh, openness to the, uh, to civil society. Mm-hmm. That um, a good police is a police which is within the French society was able to interact with uh, French citizens and, well, inhabitants of France, not right. only citizens, citizens okay. and non-citizens. So uh, there was a real issue of how the, the police is able to listen to society uh, with all its complexities, inequalities, and this should be a, a, a very strong endeavor of the French police institution. Okay. Yasser, your thoughts. How should the French government address this issue and how also does it address the concerns of these disaffected communities in the banlieues? Well, we can have uh, two coins uh, for uh, two faces of the same coin for, the, for to answer this. First, we have to redefine the role of the police. Is it there to protect the regime or the power in place or to protect and serve the population? Second, we have to raise the bar and not lower it in terms of recruiting individuals who apply to become uh, uh, police uh, servicemen and women. And, of course, the, as said before me, a, a better control of the police, the IGPN, which supervises the police, should be open to sociologists, community organizers, lawyers, and people who can have a, a dissenting voice and, to ex- and who can expose what the, what the police is doing uh, on the field. And, of course, on top of it, uh, we need to have a more independent judicial system where the prosecutor is no longer nominated by the executive branch of power, but from within the justice system. So when the police is dragged before the court of law, families stand a chance of holding the police accountable. Okay. And last but not least, we need to stop with the idea that the police is there to kill, break bones, and then terrorize people in the communities. It's not a reason, excuse me, it's not, an, it's not a coincidence that Ziad and Buna, who died in 2005, fled from the police right. despite having done no wrong. Okay. Rainbow, let me come to you now. So what needs to happen for France to restore its image of a torchbearer of liberty, equality, and human rights issues? We need courage and leadership um, from the very heart of government. Um, And we also need stability. But one of the great challenges that France faces is the growing strength over the past 20 years of the far right, um, who have stoked um, racial, uh, racial tensions within France. And at the moment, because of its lack of a parliamentary majority, the government is seeking to form an alliance with the parties of the right, who in turn are trying to win back their electorate from the far right. So politically, it's very sensitive. The government needs to have the courage to overcome this desire to win back voters from the far right and instead take a moral stand and say enough is enough and we need to do better. 
Thank you very much to all three of you for a great discussion. Yase Luati, Jacques de Maillard, Rainbow Murray. Thank you very much for joining us on Inside Story. And thank you too for watching. You can always watch this program again anytime by visiting our website at aljazeera.com. For further discussion, go to our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. Of course, you can join the conversation on Twitter. Our handle is at AJ Inside Story. From me, Fuli Batibo, and the whole team here in Doha, thanks for watching. Bye for now. Welcome back, and uh, that was an extensive report on the current uh, rebellion that is taking place uh, in France, a European Union state, a leading capitalist and imperialist uh, state, um, and of course, uh, the rebellion was prompted uh, by the police killing of a North African youth uh, who ostensibly is a citizen of France, but uh, still uh, millions there suffering. Uh, from uh, oppression and national discrimination. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit on this Saturday, July 1, uh, 2023. And uh, another uh, major area of struggle against national oppression and imperialism and that is uh, the state of Palestine, uh, which is, of course, uh, in West Asia and is suffering under Zionist colonialism. Let's listen to this report on the situation in Palestine. Israel under pressure to end so-called automated apartheid. It's accused of using facial recognition technology to control Palestinians in the occupied West Bank. So, how far does that breach their privacy? And does this technology really offer Israel greater security? This is Inside Story. Hello, welcome to the program. I'm Adrian Finnegan. Israel's use of artificial intelligence to mass surveil Palestinians in the occupied West Bank, that's the focus of talks this week between members of Amnesty International and EU Commission officials in Brussels. The human rights organization says that Israel is employing what it calls automated apartheid to build a digital database of the Palestinian population. Former Israeli soldiers say they've been ordered to photograph people to update vast databases. Palestinians say it's yet another invasion of their privacy. Al Jazeera's Laura Khan reports. Military checkpoints, cameras and roadblocks. These are part of the daily reality for Palestinians living in the occupied West Bank. And now Israel is rolling out more digital tools to spy on them. One is a facial recognition technology called Blue Wolf that's described as the Facebook of Israel's occupation. Hebron is considered one of the world's most surveilled regions, but Amnesty says it's now being rolled out across the occupied West Bank. In a report called Automated Apartheid released last month, it said Blue Wolf technology can entrench disadvantages and disempower marginalized groups. So what is Blue Wolf? The Washington Post noted the use of it two years ago. Smart cameras track and recognize people's faces. Israeli soldiers use the technology to take pictures of Palestinians and add them to a vast network compiled through mobile phones. 
Amnesty International says it creates a gamified system of competition underlying the system. That means it gives soldiers an incentive to compete in creating the highest number of profiles of Palestinians. Israeli forces say the main challenge they face in Hebron is friction between Israeli settlers and Palestinians, and the technology allows them to act faster. And many Palestinian residents say sensors have been installed by Israeli authorities and directed into their private homes and even bedrooms, and that this is just another pervasive technology to show the Palestinians they're being watched. Laura Khan for Inside Story, Al Jazeera. Well, we contacted the Israeli army to ask why it's using AI surveillance technology and for its response to the report. It said it carries out necessary security and intelligence operations while making significant efforts to minimize harm to the Palestinian population's routine activity. The statement also says that the military cannot refer to operational and intelligence capabilities in this context. Let's bring in our guests for today's discussion from Brussels. We're joined by Matt Mahmoudi, Artificial Intelligence and Human Rights Advisor at Amnesty International. He's the lead author of this report. From Occupied East Jerusalem, Jalal Abu Khata, who's a writer and community leader of the Right to Movement Palestine. And in Tel Aviv, Ori Givati, Advocacy Director at Breaking the Silence, a non-governmental organization established by veteran Israeli soldiers. A warm welcome to you all. Matt, let's start with you. Tell us more about this Amnesty report and its findings. Why does Amnesty consider facial recognition a technology that should be banned or at the very least severely restricted? To be clear, Amnesty's policy is that there should be a ban on facial recognition technologies for mass surveillance and for discriminatory surveillance because the technology is simply incompatible with international human rights law. Uh, the technology depends on the curation of a large database uh, without people's knowledge and consent, often scraping their images off of social media and other places, and therefore by design is considered a technology of mass surveillance and therefore incompatible with the right to privacy. We also consider that it's in violation of the right to equality and non-discrimination because of the inherent bias issues that exist within how the technology is trained on biased data sets, and also because there is a, a pattern of the technology being deployed in racially discriminatory contexts, and finally, because we find that the technology disincentivizes participation in protest, and so it's in violation of the right to freedom of peaceful assembly and the right to freedom of expression. So, you know, by, by its nature, we consider it in violation of international human rights law. And as far as the report is concerned, we've been looking at how facial recognition is reinforcing aspects of apartheid in the occupied Palestinian territories paying particular attention to the ways in which it further exacerbates restriction on the freedom of movement, as well as sort of perpetuating the coercive environment um, that is in place to in essentially force Palestinians out of areas of strategic interest to Israeli authorities and to illegal Israeli settlers. So in this report, we expose in particular the Red Wolf system, which is the system of, of facial recognition that is deployed at checkpoints in Hebron 
in H2, making it very difficult for Palestinians to pass into areas to access medical care um, services such as uh, work as well as uh, uh, schooling and education. And so you find that, that having to reckon now with an algorithm to access these very basic rights and services are exacerbating the already discriminatory, uh, problematic, and, and deeply repressive conditions under which Palestinians find themselves in, in the West Bank and in places like East Jerusalem. Um, for East Jerusalem, we've looked at the ways in which the Mabat 2000 system, which is now equipped with facial recognition, is being uh, deployed in areas such as Sheikh Jarrah, Damascus Gate, Silwan, and around Al-Aqsa, uh, making it even more difficult for Palestinians to resist the illegal annexation of East Jerusalem, finding themselves increasingly surveilled in everyday tasks, such as attending um, family members or meeting up for coffee. Matt, how, how does Israel's Blue Wolf uh, differ from facial recognition programs that, that, that have been introduced by governments uh, all over the world, the U.S. and India, for example? I mean, most of us are monitored constantly these days by CCTV and other forms of surveillance wherever we live in the world. It's just a fact of modern society today, isn't it? So to be clear, the, the, there's two systems in place currently in Hebron. There's, there's the Blue Wolf system, which is the app-based uh, tool that Israeli soldiers are using to both register Palestinian faces and to also uh, uh, look them up and gather all the information, display all the information quickly and instantaneously as they, uh, for example, stop and frisk a Palestinian individual. The Red Wolf system, which is deployed at the checkpoint, means that now the movement of Palestinian is all, Palestinians are also heavily restricted. What we found in other uses of facial recognition, for example, in New York, where we looked at its usage against Black Lives Matter protesters or in India, is how the technology is used invariably against protesters to diminish the civic space available to engage in, in civil disobedience, in dissent. What's particularly chilling about the way that it's deployed in the context of the OPT is the ways in, it, in which it is governing movement, so literally stifling individuals from being able to access basic rights and services, even in cases in which it's not deployed at the checkpoint, for example, with the Mabat 2000 system or with the Blue Wolf, it's very clear that Palestinians now have to contend with the additional calculus of fear involved in just engaging in everyday activities, increasingly diminishing the spaces available for Palestinians to live. We have uh, accounts and testimonies of Palestinian families noticing, noting how in, in Hebron, the, uh, the incursion of, of, of facial recognition technologies is effectively destroying any form of social life. We'll hear more of, about what life is, is like living <clears throat> under this kind of surveillance from Jalal in just a moment. But first, Ori, I want to ask you about what your former colleagues are telling you about how they feel about Israel's use of this technology. What is Israel's justification, do you think, for, for using it? So, uh, hi, and thank you uh, for having me, and thank you for also uh, the great work uh, of Amnesty with this report, and we were happy to collaborate. I think that, um, first of all, when we started hearing from uh, soldiers who actually used these technologies in the last few years, we noticed a change. You know, we, we are using breaking the silence in the last uh, almost 20 years we're working to hear about the different ways we control uh, and invade Palestinians' lives, right? So uh, invasion, home invasions, uh, invasions to villages, dispersion of protests, um, and many other you know, military patrols, and all the very 
uh, you can say routine uh, parts of the way we control the Palestinian uh, population in the occupied territories. And when we started hearing about these, the use of these systems, we are hearing about a, basically a new layer of control. Yeah? So if until now we're, we've been controlling them only by the, in the physical space, yeah? in their homes, in their streets, in the protests, we added another, another layer, which is basically controlling Palestinian digital space. Yeah? So a Palestinian today in the occupied territory is not only uh, feeling like his home might be invaded at any moment, yeah? but also that his most private, uh, you know, personal uh, biometric information is also being uh, controlled by the military. Now, when you talk about justification, you know, and you take different elements of occupation, included, including uh, digital surveillance technologies, the justification is always security. Yeah? When we published together with the Washington Post a year and a half ago, uh, the military said something similar to what you read uh, in the beginning of your introduction here, uh, that it's uh, in order to improve uh, Palestinian lifestyle, right? It makes our uh, control better, more efficient, right? If until uh, the use of the blue walls, the soldiers that they wanted to check, you know, the background of an individual they stopped in the street, they had to call their uh, base and give the base their uh, ID number. And then the, the, in the base, the soldiers needed to check the system. Now they take a photo and they immediately have the details. Yeah, it's, it's, it's making everything more efficient. Yeah. Um, but this kind of justification can, you know, uh, the security justification or making everything more efficient, uh, this can be used for everything almost within the occupied territories. And in the end, we have to remember what we're talking about here. Yeah? We're talking about millions of people living uh, under uh, uh, more than 56 years of military uh, occupation uh, in, a co in the context that, um, you know, the Palestinians that are stopped in the streets and their photos are taken, they uh, can't, they don't consent. They have basically, yeah, until the work, until the testimonies came and other research uh, emerged, they have no idea what these photos are for. Yeah? They can't vote for a political party that is against that. Yeah? They can't vote to, for any party that is related to uh, the way they're controlled. Yeah? They don't vote for, for the Israeli government. Um, and there are no checks and balances on these databases, who is maintaining them, who is making sure they don't leak, who is making sure they're secure enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so okay. taking the military justification and look at what's actually going on on the ground, uh, it's very simple to understand. We're talking about a mechanism of further entrenching elements of occupation and apartheid and not, uh, as the Israel, Israel have to say, improving the Palestinian lifestyle. Okay. Jalal, um, you've written that you live in a surveillance society which is no different to those uh, depicted in dystopian science fiction novels. Uh, tell us something about everyday life living under such surveillance. What impact does it have directly upon uh, you, your family, your, your friends? It, it starts at home, doesn't it? Even before you've left the house. Absolutely, absolutely. I think this is the purpose of such a system of intrusive surveillance. Uh, it's something that's always interested me, like how it affects societies and even through reading dystopian novels or watching like uh, movies as a kid, I could imagine the psychological impact such a surveillance society would have on people. And throughout the, pa the past 10 years of my life, maybe perhaps like six, seven years, I've seen this system of super intrusive surveillance being applied 
uh, and it is part of our every single aspect of our daily life, whether it's on the streets, whether it's traveling, uh, seeing family, or even communicating online, our telephones. Uh, the surveillance is, is existing in every part. Of course, um, it is a layer of many layers that Israel employs to uh, cement and entrench a system of oppression, of apartheid, um, of settler colonialism. This is how the, the, the settler colony would dominate and control the population uh, that is, uh, they're colonizing basically. And, uh, you know, as a Palestinian, as any Palestinian would tell you, uh, we already face um, harsh, a harsh reality on every front. Uh, some people are facing um, imminent forcible evictions from their homes, especially in Jerusalem, or uh, the third of Palestinian Jerusalemites, over 100,000 Palestinians who live in construction that's deemed to be illegal by the Israeli authorities. Of course, it is because of systematic discrimination. Uh, people li live in fear in the West Bank, fear for their life, the settlement's expansion, and the violence is daily and occurring in every corner. The fact that there's a, another layer uh, with an even further impact, psychological impact on us, the surveillance system, it, 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 it's supposed to, its purpose is to defeat us, to not resist this violent reality that we live through. They want us to, to put us off from resisting this horrible occupation, this horrible reality. And, you know, when you live in such a society, the, the thing that gives you hope as an as a individual is if you're engaging politically in activism and if you're expressing your views, your opposition of this occupation and apartheid, if you're able to go to, on a march, uh, if you have some basic liberties to protest and voice your opposition to the system. The fact that we don't have even the right to protest in the most simple, basic um uh, unarmed, uh, popular resistance form, the most basic forms, even posting on social media could get people arrested, charges such as incitement. So it's, it's a multi-layered system of yeah. really violent reality that we have to live through. Jalal, you, you also wrote that the surveillance that you're personally subjected to is nothing compared to what residents of Hebron are currently facing. What, what's going on in Hebron? Why is surveillance so much tougher there? Um, you know, there are many tiers to this uh, system of apartheid. Um, myself, as a Jerusalemite, we are constantly controlled and monitored, uh, especially in Jerusalem. We are isolated from the rest of the Palestinian uh, communities, especially in the West Bank, through checkpoints, through the wall. Uh, there is a certain reality that us as Jerusalemites, stateless Palestinians, live. We are not citizens of either state, but we are subjected to a different system because Jerusalem has been illegally annexed in 1980, and we're subjected to a different legal system. In the West Bank, Palestinians who are under direct Israeli control, uh, they are subjected to a wholly different system, a military system, uh, judges with a 99.7 conviction rate. Uh, Palestinians have up close to no rights in the West Bank under Israel's military occupation. Palestinians have little rights elsewhere between the river and the sea, but, you know, in the heart of Hebron, you know, there is a settlement project that is basically in the heart of the city of Hebron. Um, for example, in Nablus, you would, you would uh, consider more of the right to movement and the suffocation that people feel when Nablus is besieged. But settlements are surrounding Nablus. Hebron's different. The settlers, they don't number over a thousand, but they are in the heart of the most populous city in the West Bank. And people, Palestinians, they are subjected to the most cruel regime uh, of apartheid. And surveillance is the, the, the top and most obvious layer, you know. You yeah. can get stopped on your way to the shop for groceries. You can get uh, harassed on your way to school. Uh, the most basic uh, acts of life are always constantly affected by the system of surveillance. 
Ori, wouldn't it be cheaper to relocate the small number of Israeli settlers in uh, the centre of Hebron rather than investing so much in these surveillance technologies? So, uh, first, I'll continue from where Jalal ended, and I totally agree with him. One of the things we see in Hebron is that it's kind of an occupation lab. Yeah, we see different tools of occupation, not only surveillance tech, but recently, uh, very prominently about surveillance tech, start in Hebron, yeah? Blue Wolf, uh, we know that's already existing all over the West Bank, yeah? We have soldiers' testimonies from all over the West Bank uh, um, using Blue Wolf. Red Wolf, still only in Hebron, as far as we know, but very uh, possible, will be expanded throughout the West Bank in the future. Um, we also have other types of technologies, you know, recently, we saw a, a remotely operated uh, weapon uh, installed in one of the most important checkpoints in Hebron, directed towards the Palestinian neighborhood. And we already know that after it was installed in Hebron, it, it was installed in at least two other uh, uh, refugee camps around the West Bank. So many of the different ways we occupy, ways we control, begin in Hebron and then expand throughout the West Bank. Now, about the settlement of Hebron, you know, um, if uh, uh, um, we look at the way that Israel has been uh, controlling Hebron, we can see, you know, Hebron is kind of a microcosm of the occupation. Yeah, you have a settler in the middle of the city, you have 23 checkpoints, you have segregated roads, you have daily home invasions, incursions to Palestinian neighborhoods and so forth, which is exactly the way we control the entire West Bank. Yeah, of course, but if you think about it reasonably, yeah, you would say it doesn't make sense to put a settlement in the middle of the city. But unfortunately, right now, uh, my uh, uh, country, not only right now, in the last few decades, decided that we want to pursue this messianic uh, project. Yeah, and in order to pursue it, yeah, we will establish settlements not only around the West Bank, basically creating a closed zone, no, surrounding Palestinian cities, exactly as Jalal said, but in Hebron, establishing a settlement in the center of the city um, in order to support this project. You know, of course, that if you think about it reasonably, economically, and so forth, you know, we have, in weekends, over a thousand soldiers guarding these settlements, yeah? Of course, it doesn't make sense. But when you look at the politics, yeah, when you look at the, at the, at the, at the broader project of the settler movement, yeah. Hebron is a pillar of that process. Okay, and just before we get back to Matt, Jalal, you suspect there's, there's something else going on here as well, in that it's not just about the surveillance technology, that, that the people of Hebron are, to a certain extent, um, uh, the subjects of an experiment. This is technologies that, that, that Israel wants to profit from, it wants to sell on. Absolutely. I think Hebron is an excellent, uh, as, as already said, uh, uh, the lab for AI uh, technology, for surveillance technologies. And as, as we all know, the technology that starts in this really oppressive nature in Hebron also spreads uh, throughout the West Bank and it's promoted and sold elsewhere across the globe as well. Uh, but I have to also uh, point out the fact that also the Gaza Strip under siege for over 60, 17 years uh, is also the lab for Israel's lethal technology, mostly uh, the weaponry, the destructive bombs uh, that have, have caused atrocities in Gaza. 
so I see that Israel, the settler colonial project in its entirety, is benefiting from those specific pockets, those labs, and learning exactly how to maintain the system of um, apartheid and colonialism throughout the land between the river and the sea. And what we see in Hebron is felt everywhere across Palestine. We will see in Jerusalem as well. We're seeing Gaza. It's all part of the same idea of dominating and controlling the Palestinian population. Uh, no rights, no civil liberties, uh, quality of life that's always dwindling, no dignity, and just, uh, I don't know, the most undignified existence. That's the control that the Zionist project wants to have in Palestine. Matt, as we said at the beginning of the program, Amnesty is meeting with EU Commission representatives. What can the EU do about Israel's use of facial recognition technologies? Are any European companies involved in supplying the technology? Is it illegal for them to do so? And if EU manufacturers are encouraged not to supply such technologies to Israel, they'll simply be replaced by homegrown or Chinese ones, won't they? So the two companies that we identified were TKH Security and Hikvision. TKH Security is a Dutch surveillance manufacturer. They're one of many companies that are operating slash have products available that are of high likelihood of being used together with the Mabat 2000 system in East Jerusalem for surveillance. Uh, the EU AI Act, which is a landmark AI legislation currently under negotiation at uh, the EU, is a one avenue through which we can challenge the ways in which these technologies are currently supporting and enabling the scaling of apartheid policies against Palestinians in the occupied Palestinian territories. We've been particularly concerned with what it would mean to potentially increase the prohibitions and what we class as being prohibited under the EUAI Act such that a proposal that is suggesting the banning of export of any technology that would be deemed as prohibited in the EU context from being exported to uh, uh, the Israeli authorities uh, or any other uh, uh, state outside of the EU context for usage for human rights abuses elsewhere. So if we can get the AI, the AI Act to a point under which uh, for example, retrospective uh, remote biometric technologies would be prohibited. We would also be in a situation in which hopefully, uh, with some courage, uh, the uh, technologies that would be used for, for these purposes in, by Israeli authorities uh, in the occupied Palestinian territories could also be prohibited. As for whether the Israeli authorities might find another avenue for uh, supplying themselves with uh, technologies that can be used for facial recognition, of course, there may be other avenues and they may even be homegrown. However, by weakening the, 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 the supply of hardware that is used together with facial recognition systems uh, that are being supplied from the EU and from, from elsewhere, uh, especially given obligations that these companies have under the UN guiding principles, for example, to ensure that they have human rights due diligence in place, that they are not, that their products are not, for example, uh, supporting and enabling international grave crimes, that we can create a non-permissive environment for companies to engage okay. with but, helping the scaling of apartheid but, policies. But Matt, the settlements are illegal, the wall is illegal, this surveillance we're discussing is part of an illegal occupation. Israel's just going to ignore any outcry, uh, an amnesty campaigning on this issue, like it always has. You're shouting in the dark, aren't you? 
it may well be that we're shouting in the dark, though of course the amnesty, uh, the motto tends to be that, that it's, uh, it's better to, to, to light a candle than to curse out the darkness. And in this case, I think that's very true because as we begin to make it more uh, non-permissible to engage in the supply of surveillance technology, as we begin to create almost a repugnant market, as it were, around the supply of surveillance and AI technologies, making it distasteful and, and, and public knowledge that indeed human rights violations are, um, are being effectuated by the usage of AI technologies in places like uh, Palestine, then we begin to make it more possible to weaken this system and to indeed bring even trials outside of the context of, of, of Israel and Palestine to the floor. I think it's very important that we begin to shine a light on how technologies that sometimes can seem a little ephemeral or hard to grasp are leading to real human rights consequences everywhere. And indeed, I think in the European context, there should be some uh, cause to rethink and, and stop and take a pause and consider what it would look like to have technologies that are restricting the freedom of movement deployed here, because that is what we're okay. seeing the natural conclusion of. Ori, I've got about 30 seconds left, uh, so a quick answer, please. Is, is any of this pressure going to make any difference? Does Israel care? Uh, look, unfortunately, right now, it's the most ultranationalist uh, government we've ever seen, uh, and I'm saying this as an Israeli. Uh, the EU, uh, our friends, you know, even also the US are not doing enough, you know, not to protect Palestinians and also not to help our society. But we definitely believe that we and organizations like Amnesty must keep doing this work, bring these realities into Brussels, into the state, because eventually we will believe that they will take action. We just need it to be as soon as possible and not wait like they are waiting right now. Gentlemen, there we must end our discussion. Many thanks indeed to, to you for being with us. Uh, Matt Mahmoudi, uh, Jalal Abu Hatta, and uh, Ori Gavati. And uh, as always, thank you for watching. Don't forget you can see the program again at any time by going to the website, altazero.com. And for further discussion, join us at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. And you can join the conversation on Twitter, our handle at AJ Inside Story. From me, Adrian Finnegan, and the whole team here, we'll see you again. Bye for now. Welcome back. And uh, that was a report on the use of artificial intelligence uh, in the state of Israel and the oppression of the state of Palestine and the Palestinian people. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast on this Sunday, Saturday, July 1st, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week.
music of uh, Sly and the Family Stone uh, via Little Sister uh, with a track entitled Somebody's Watching You. And this is the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. And uh, we're here on Saturday, uh, July 1, uh, broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And one of the most articulate uh, voices uh, emanating today uh, from the Caribbean and indeed uh, the emerging economies as a whole is uh, the Prime Minister of Barbados, uh, Mia Motley. We're going to listen to an address uh, delivered uh, by uh, Prime Minister Mia Motley in Ghana. Uh, let's listen in. Thank you very much. Your Excellencies all, you must forgive me if I'm a little emotional this morning because this represents a very special moment not just for me but for those of us who not due to anything that we did but who were carried from this place to another place and yes, there were those who came and worked in the early days of the independence of this nation. You only need to see the road named in tribute to George Padmore to appreciate the significance of the efforts of unity that came before us. In my own country, the first governor of the Central Bank of Barbados, Dr. Courtney Blackman, Sir Courtney Blackman, and our revered poet of international repute, Kamau Brathwaite, both spent time in this great country teaching and learning how to live. But today we come conscious, therefore, that we were not the first to make this journey of Pan-Africanism and that there has been a century of effort. I start here because in a world that is so clued in on instantaneous gratification that it is important to set context and to understand the mission ahead of us. And that is why this morning is special. The context has so appropriately enunciated by the fathers of this institution that without the ability to bring prosperity to our people, we will not succeed. And that that prosperity comes through growth and growth comes through enhanced trade and opportunities for ordinary people. Perspective, because we live in a world where the existential crises threaten our individual and collective demise such that if we don't come together to stay together we cannot survive the battles of this century. I want at the outset to salute and thank Professor Benedict Orama 
who is an outstanding visionary and who appreciated that Africa's reach must not simply be that on the continent but that the tangible expression of integrating the daughters and sons of Africa from the diaspora and in this particular instance the Caribbean is a critical part of the journey of being able to forge a clear and definite future of prosperity for our people. And Professor, you have a talented and committed team. And ever since our encounter in 2021, we've seen the example of that commitment in the Caribbean in tangible ways by the urgency with which they and you have undertaken this mission. Perspective, because as chairman of CARICOM in 2020, when the COVID outbreak hit us, I received a call from Dr. Tedros, who said to me, speak to Strive Masiwa. The Caribbean must not flounder with its capacity to respond to this pandemic. And the people of Africa, the heads of government and heads of state of Africa have come together to establish the African Medical Supplies Platform. It will pool the procurement to guarantee access because we were told that our orders were simply too small to make a difference, too small to access from equipment to therapeutics to vaccines. Too small to be seen, too small to be heard, too small to be felt. And that that platform, for those who may have difficulties, the financing would be available from Africzim Bank. That was the first encounter. You heard from President Okufuado earlier the importance of friendship and the dire importance of friends in need. We, therefore, today are simply seeking to build upon that engagement which started in 2020 and which could so easily have been left as an isolated experience were it not for the vision and commitment of Professor Arama and the determination. His was a determination that if we are to truly realize our potential, then we must do as others have done. We must go afar. We may not colonize in the way that they have, but we will influence in the way that we must. And we will influence because we understand that we still regrettably fight the battles to remove an imperial shadow over the modern transactions and engagements of the 21st century. 
That imperial shadow has meant that the things that we were told could not be done have been done by others. That there should be no quantitative reason. But yet, in the middle of the pandemic, the G7 countries engaged with a level of quantitative easing that even surpassed what they did when the financial crisis broke in 2008-9. We were told that there should be no export restrictions, but we saw equipment held back and export restrictions applied when ventilators were in short supply, when it was the belief that ventilators were the savior for those who needed to survive the pandemic. We were told, as we have been for years, that there should be no subsidies and policies to give ourselves preferential advantage in a world that has been liberalized for trade. But yet we see the consequences of the Inflation Reduction Act today as we speak on the other trading partners of the globe. I say these things because if we are truly to unite and to bring prosperity to our people, a number of things matter. One, we must come together first and foremost to create the environment within which our governments and our people can most be successful. And that means reframing the agreements that were made when we were not seen as sovereign nations and when justifiably they could say that they did not know of our circumstances because we did not have the expression of nationhood when the Bretton Woods institutions were formed. Similarly, we can say to them now that almost eight decades later, there is no excuse for not seeing us, hearing us, or feeling us. And there is no excuse for others being proxies for our voices in circumstances where we do not have a seat at the table. But I come from a small little nation who also produced a woman called Shirley Chisholm who in her attempt to remain unbought and unbossed not only was the first African descendant to become a female member of the Congress of the United States of America in 1968, but she dared to also run for the presidency of that country and to articulate a vision that is as relevant today, 50 years later, as it was when she went on that occasion. And she told us, that if there is no seat at the table, bring your own chair. So you will better understand why we are not prepared to accept things as they are and work together to shape things as they must be. But when we finish, or as we keep doing that, it is the political will that first and foremost makes the difference to whether we are prepared to rise to the occasion and to overcome the challenges that hitherto have been placed before us 
And I refer not now yet to the existential challenges, but to the challenges that were foisted upon us by colonialism and division, by language, by religion, by those who understood that as long as we could be divided, the dominance of those of a lesser vast number could preside. I say to us today that we know the power of unity and it cannot simply be in the rhetoric. It needs to be in our actions and in our policies. There must be a Blue Ribbon Commission established between the African Union and the Caribbean community to put to rest once and for all the issues of connectivity. Connectivity of transport, but equally connectivity of telecommunications. We cannot be talking about innovation. We cannot be talking about prosperity and only prepared to look north rather than to look east or west. The only people who can be blamed for the absence of that connectivity now are no longer those who colonized us, but those who are in the seat today to make the difference by securing that connectivity. And I therefore look forward to my brothers and sisters coming together, recognizing that while each of us may not have the capacity to do all that we would like to do, we have the ability to pool together to secure that advantage. The Africa Exim Bank, the Africa Development Bank, the Caribbean Development Bank, the CARICOM Development Fund have a duty to work with us all to ensure that whatever is necessary to make both the financial and economic case of connectivity is put in place because the next major step of cementing this relationship is not about leaders coming and mixing with other leaders but it is about ordinary people moving in their own time and space to be able to make those friends, to make new family, and to make new business. When that happens, we will not even know the bounty that shall be created. Because there is an organic nature in which the creativity and the abundance of our people shall allow for things to happen and to be created that we can't even contemplate today. But separate from that, there is the issue of functional cooperation. And the functional cooperation as we are seeing with the commitment of CARICOM to be able to participate through our central bank governors in the payment system, payment and settlement system, perhaps Recognizing that if we use that same system, we can minimize the extent to which trading in hard currency 
can limit the opportunities for our people even within the Caribbean region, even within the African Union, but more importantly, across the Atlantic Ocean with each other. The functional cooperation, however, must go beyond that. And it must now also, as it did in the area of the African Medical Supplies Platform, continue where Pooled procurement is critical both to access difficult provisions or equipment where our orders, as I said, are simply too small and to guarantee better pricing that we cannot do as market takers and not as market shapers. That pooled procurement, particularly in a world bedeviled by a climate crisis, relates to the extent to which we can make the investments in a few critical areas. Yes, one is pharmaceuticals. There is need for pooled procurement in pharmaceuticals, but there is also need for manufacturing of pharmaceuticals in the global south, as Rwanda has shown so brilliantly here on the continent with the establishment of its partnership with BioNTech and other African countries are about to follow. In our own region, Barbados and Guyana have also indicated that we will work together with Rwanda and the WHO and other partners in the European Investment Bank and the European Union for both technology transfer, for the provision of the regulatory framework being adopted and for ultimately the access to have the capital. But what matters for this to happen is for us to be able to have the pooled procurement. We spoke earlier, I think Professor Rama was the one who showed us the possibilities of what can happen when Zambia makes electric vehicle batteries or when other countries are involved in medical devices. We have through functional cooperation to determine what are the centers of excellence in terms of industrial production that can bind us together as a Caribbean and African people. Similarly, my dear brother, Prime Minister of Bahamas and Chairman of CARICOM has spoken eloquently about the possibilities of services. What we can bring to the table and what you can bring to the table in terms of tourism services like Bahamas, Barbados has in excess of a century's experience in the business of tourism. By the same token, in the area of educational and medical services, we have been able to excel such that we have been able to provide for our people a quality of life for the most part that is among the envy of the world as a developing nation. It is not rocket science. It is not impossible. And in the same way we had citizens come here 70 years ago to teach there must be ways in which there can be greater collaboration with respect to education and with respect to medical services as we are seeking to do with the Africa Zimbang with financial services. Bahamas has been an exemplar like Barbados, like Jamaica, like St. Vincent and the Grenadines, like St. Lucia, like Grenada, Antigua, St. Kitts and Nevis, all of us 
know what it is to earn our living through being hospitable and providing opportunities for others to visit. We have among global tourism the highest repeat visitor rate. It is not impossible, therefore, for us to have a more structured approach, not just to land-based tourism, but to cruise tourism. Africa and the Gulf states have the lowest penetration with respect to cruise tourism globally. And I hope that through our cooperation with Africanism Bank, we can see individual projects from the St. Vincent and the Grenadines, which I call God's place on earth. When you go to the Grenadines and you see the beauty of the landscape to other parts of the Caribbean, where in the case of Barbados, we currently home port cruise ships and take people from the United Kingdom every week in the winter season to cruise the Caribbean. And when you ask those in Africa, why aren't we seeing more people? There is a problem of the transit visas in the North Atlantic countries. If we allow the denial of visas to our people in the North Atlantic countries to define how we can trade, then we truly deserve whatever comes to us. It is within our power to build those bridges to stop our people from being the victims deliberately or by accident of the actions of others. In the area of services, the innovation continues. Many people in this room would never have heard of something called Archie, have you? Archie, as it then was, was the first internet search engine tool. And Archie was an innovation of a young Barbadian, Alan Entage. You didn't know that. And he refused to patent his revolutionary technology to ensure that the modern technologies we use today could be done and could be built. He is now recognized for his creation. So that when we speak about Google, we need to know that long before Google, there was Archie. Now there are some who might have said that he was foolish and he should have patented and done what all the others did. But equally, long before Apple Pay, there was M-Pesa. And we begin to ask ourselves, how best can we work together to ensure that that innovation which we have seen, which is not gone, but still resides very much in the bosom of our people, how can it be nurtured, and how can it be used in the interests of our people? I believe that the African Zim Bank, along with the other financial institutions, have a role to play in that. But more often than not, we have so much distance to go in bridging the development deficit 
that we tend to focus only on those traditional areas rather than appreciating the importance of equal attention to unleashing the innovation of our ordinary people in Africa and the Caribbean. I believe, therefore, that we have a duty to have the cultural confidence that is necessary to believe in our people and to put the institutions there from which they can benefit. And this is where the romanticism that binds us together meets the rubber on the road with the practicality of the institutions necessary to integrate into a global economy. The Africa Exim Bank over its 30 years has shown that it is not just a romantic ideal for Africans, but it has done the business of being able to bring together opportunities for people and companies, particularly when they are most needed. I look forward to the CARICOM Development Fund, who has just become a shareholder of the Africa Exim Bank, being able to meet the true needs of the revised Treaty of Shagaramas, which established the Caribbean community. The Treaty of Shagaramas, which established the Caribbean community, and the revised treaty, which established the single market and single economy. In that revised treaty, Prime Minister Gonzalez, my dear brother, and elder statesman of the Caribbean civilization, speaks often about the fact that in a single market there are winners and there are losers. And one of the great geniuses of that arrangement we created was the fact that it recognizes that disadvantaged countries, disadvantaged sectors, and disadvantaged regions must not be forgotten. The CARICOM Development Fund, therefore, was the mechanism that was established to level the development that was necessary for all to benefit from our own free trade area in the Caribbean community. Its capacity to do so has been limited in the past by the contributions of small countries, its members. This opportunity as a shareholder of the African Zimbabwe excites us as to the possibilities of finding mechanisms to unlock the significant savings base of the Caribbean community such that we can put financial instruments that are innovative to allow our own people to help finance our own development rather than simply waiting for others to bring money to help us. I am not sure that others will appreciate the significance of this moment. But while we fight among ourselves to raise 200 million, we can seek to go after some of those savings. And if we just get 1% of what is available in our banking system, both through financial and non-financial deposits, that will be in excess 
of a billion US dollars. What is missing was the courage of an institution to work with us to unlock these savings. This is why this is an emotional moment for me and my colleagues today. We have come to Accra, Ghana, not because we have simply come home to celebrate the homeland, but we have come to Accra, Ghana, confident that the things we shall do here and the agreements we shall make here are part of a continuum that we have started in the last year with the African Bank to be able to see how truly we can make a defining difference to the lives of our people. These things will not happen by accident. And when we spoke of the first Africa Trade, the Caribbean Trade Investment Forum a year ago, others didn't believe that it would be possible. And yet we met in Barbados at the end of August, early September, to host that first Trade and Investment Forum. I look forward to when we will meet later this year in Guyana to do the same. Because it is the bridges that we are building that will create the opportunities that our people need. You know, when we saw the holograph, and we, especially for me, who was not born until 1965, could sit in a room with the father of the post-independence world of Africa and the Caribbean, and hear the voice and the words of Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, it was also a special moment. His commitment and his life's journey is a lesson for us all on this journey. That even those who were revered have the capacity to be distracted and taken down by those whose vision is too narrow and too limited. But that ultimately, the noble causes that we fight for will always rise because they are universal and they are perennial. I leave therefore this morning, this stage, confident that that which has brought us to Accra is a noble and veritable cause. It was expressed by Bob Marley in that great song, Africa Unite, as we're moving right out of Babylon and we're moving into the fatherland, or should I say, the motherland. My friends, my friends, this conference is not just simply about words. The genius of this conference is that it has been about action. Let us all to the occasion now apply the will that is necessary to close the gap and to recognize from the example of Dr. Nkrumah's life that it is not always a straight line, but that we shall always remain focused because that cause for which we fight is a necessary and a just cause for the liberation and for the improvement of the lives of the people of Africa wherever the people of Africa are found on the planet Earth. Thank you and God bless.
And uh, that was uh, Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia Motley, uh, speaking at the African Import-Export Conference. And, of course, uh, uh, Mia Motley uh, has uh, articulated uh, many of the issues uh, that have been burning uh, over the last six to seven decades uh, among African people in their struggle for unity and social transformation. Another address delivered by Prime Minister Mia Motley uh, at the International Labor Organization Conference in Geneva. Let's listen to some excerpts from this address as well that was uh, delivered just recently. Thank you very much, Mr. Director General and Mr. President, distinguished guests all. I believe that the world is at a moment of inflection. And this must be one of those moments in humanity's story that there's so many opportunities to excite us, but yet there's so many threats that will scare us. The opportunities are mind-blowing. Innovations like precision medicine and green hydrogen and space tourism, the metaverse and flying cars that we saw only in the cartoons of the Jetsons when we were growing up. All of a sudden, these things are part of our reality. And much of this has been, in our minds, science fiction. But yet they're here. It is an exciting time to be alive. But unfortunately, there's also so much to worry about. The proliferation of cybersecurity attacks, fake news, food insecurity and water insecurity, war, disease, and of course the state of our planet's biodiversity and its climate. Each of these in their own right could be considered existential threats, unregulated artificial intelligence. And when we tally all of these, we now begin to understand why the world is feeling so much on edge. And more importantly, no wonder people are so anxious and want to hearken back to a time past. For me at the core, to finding solutions for so many of these crises in our world now, we must face the need for a simple concept, one that is known to our children. It's just called fairness. Fairness. Another word for social justice. Fairness that will help us understand that the polluters and not the victims of pollution should pay the price for pollution. Fairness to understand that a person's religion or skin color or gender or orientation or place of birth or class does not make them any less a person. Ironically, it is the ILO's core congregation, workers, that understand this concept of fairness maybe better than most other adult groups on the planet. Workers understand the value of space, and workers understand the value that leaders and value leaders 
that truly value fairness. Workers produce when they feel that their leaders understand fairness. Fairness is not just how they are paid, not just how they are engaged, not just how they are treated, not just how they are valued, but indeed how they are enfranchised. For ownership matters as you will continue to hear me say. Fairness will determine how smoothly we impact and manage all who are displaced in this awful transition that we are now seeing in today's world of which my dear brother President Ruto spoke. People who worry about the displacement as a result of artificial intelligence and robots and software. We must work tirelessly as governments to provide the environment within which jobs can be created for our people. Because without that basic dignity, our people will be at the mercy of others. Fairness will be determined by who owns the robots and who owns the enterprises, as I said when I addressed this body on its centenary anniversary. Ownership matters. Fairness will also determine how we smoothly manage global migration and afford people the human right of fair movement. Why should capital move and not people? Especially where there are parts of the world where clearly people are needed to be an engine of growth. We have seen the horror as it unfolds off Greece as we meet here this morning for yet hundreds more passing from this mortal earth. When will enough be enough to motivate action? Fairness will determine how we leverage advanced technologies and policies to ensure that people engaged in the gig economy and remote work will have access to high quality social protection wherever they may be. That the modalities have changed does not mean that the values that underpin all that we stand for should be ignored. Fairness matters in the gig economy. Fairness will help us to understand that the countries of the global north should not have access to better financing options than countries in the global south just because those in the north colonize those in the south and continue to shape a world order in their own image almost eight decades after the Charter of the United Nations was settled. A simple word, fairness. My friends, it is for this reason that we have brought the Bridgetown Initiative, a collection of views reflective not only of our own countries, but of those of other countries across the world and institutions and academia, collecting in one space our views and sentiments that we hope will propel a movement towards fairness. A Bridgetown initiative that seeks to find the financing that will allow us to save our planet by facilitating the private sector through lowering and leveling the cost of debt between those who work in the global north and the global south. Not to have announcements in Glasgow like the Jet P made with great ceremony and celebration, but not to be able to get off the ground 
because the cost of capital in South Africa is significantly higher than the cost of capital in Europe. A Bridgetown initiative that therefore will allow the private sector to play their part in helping us to reach 1.5 degrees because mitigation matters wherever it takes place on this earth and governments while we seek to adapt need partnership with us to be able to transform into a just transition particularly with the mitigation necessary to contain the temperatures within that 1.5 degree. A Bridgetown initiative that allows us to adapt and make ourselves and circumstances more comfortable and more resilient to meet these multiple crises, to meet these floods and these wildfires and these hurricanes and the sargassum seaweed that threatens so much coastal economies and the hurricanes, the heart attack of the climate crisis. As we see those in the Asian subcontinent brace for yet another typhoon to come on shore, what will tomorrow's headlines be? as a result of that episode. A Bridgetown initiative that is also about recognizing that there needs to be a relaxation on debt anchors that by their very ambitions and stiff trajectory meet the needs of academia and institutional bureaucrats but do not protect our vulnerable people and do not protect the institutions that are necessary to fuel growth. A Bridgetown initiative that is about securing truly, truly long-term money, not the 10 and 20 year money that we are expected to meet the sustainable development goals with, but cannot stretch sufficient to be able to provide education or health care or decency to the people who depend on us the most. A Bridgetown initiative, my friends, that underscores global moral strategic leadership for fair and balanced growth and for opportunities between yes the north and south together not adversarially to ensure that we can propel our people through this polycrisis moment a bridgetown initiative that understands that the route to paris next week to discuss a new global financial pact starts here today in Geneva at the World of Work Summit when we discuss social justice for all before settling on the accounting mechanisms. My friends, in the case of Barbados, our creed has been simple. Share the burden, share the bounty. Share the burden, share the bounty. Many hands make light work. And of course that golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Simple, simple precepts that if we followed them would promote fairness and so social justice, solidarity and caring. For whether it is among children as I've said or among adults in the public sphere in the workplace, these are the principles that must respect the dignity of each human being regardless of the circumstances and that must be the 
absolute imperative upon which we build if we are to give opportunity and hope to our people. These are matters that we feel strongly about because in Barbados and in the Caribbean we come from a history and a place where labor and human development was born out of unfairness and the most horrific treatment of human beings not for a decade or half a decade but for centuries. My friends, that is why we've been the place that has produced in the region so many outstanding pioneers and stalwarts of social justice over the last century. And that is why I stand here today proud because two of my own members of parliament have played and continue to play a critical role in these discussions this week. My Minister of Labour, the Honourable Colin Jordan, and my Gen the General Secretary of the Barbados Workers Union, the Honourable Tony Moore. They have spent the week, I am told, as recent as one o'clock this morning, concluding the concerns for a just transition towards an environmentally sustainable economies and societies for all that I trust that this conference will adopt tomorrow. I give you that context because this is a small country, 166 square miles, that says these things but lives by these things. And we continue to make a difference because we believe that this is how our journey across independent statehood should shape. Seeing people, hearing people, and feeling people. We deeply understand systematic and systemic unfairness, and we deeply understand the need for social justice. And that is why I salute the mission and work, sir, of you as Director General of this institution. I'm in full agreement with your call for partnership within and outside the multilateral system to ensure that those in the Global South not only have the access to tools, but indeed the requisite skills and capacity to take advantage of opportunities in the future of work. Failing that, what will be the result? Deeper inequalities, more calls for persons to hold on to things that are familiar but that may well be discriminatory as we are seeing across all sides of the Atlantic and all parts of the world. This work of social justice within the relationship between the Global North and the Global South is also a work that must be done. And who better to anchor this than the ILO, the only institution that has tripartite membership globally in the UN system. And I say so from a country whose governance model is anchored in the social partnership, a tripartite mode that celebrated 30 years this year of that approach to governance to secure our own stability and progress. The need to expedite, therefore, progress across the global community and within countries for fairness and a level playing field especially in the Global South, may be a sense. Welcome back. And 
Chad was uh, an address uh, by Barbadian Prime Minister uh, Mia Motley uh, to the International Labor Organization Conference in Geneva, Switzerland. And that's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for Saturday, uh, July 1st, uh, 2023. Uh, We've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And if you'd like to have access uh, to uh, this program, all you need to do is go uh, to our website, and that is at the Pan-African Radio Network. You can reach the Pan-African Radio Network at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, the program uh, with the legendary jazz artist Horace Silver, uh, taken uh, from the album entitled This is Abayomi Azikawe, signing off, and have a beautiful week. 